media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. My wife said something in church this morning that I've never heard her say before. She goes, it's hot in here. <laughs> Last week she was frozen, and many of you froze. We're at that time of the year. I know that we keep it kind of cool in here a little bit, but we're at that time of year just like you're at home. Okay, do I turn on the heat or do I turn on the air conditioning? And you kind of go back and forth. So we have that challenge this morning. We're trying to keep you comfortable. Most of all, we're trying to keep you awake so that we can uh, uh, study God's Word together. So... Uh, Understand our dilemma there. Philippians chapter 3. How many of you have either heard somebody say, or um, you've said yourself, Christianity is not about religion, it's all about relationship. Have you heard that before? Okay. And maybe you've even said that yourself. And, and I, I want to be really careful. Uh, I, I don't like just popping balloons just for the sake of popping balloons. Uh, there's some some real challenge to that statement. It's, it's uh, one of those that... I think we have to be really careful when we take really great doctrines and we take really great things and reduce it down to a bumper sticker. You know my whole kind of disdain for bumper sticker theology. I know what people mean when they say that, and there's a part of me that would totally agree that it's not about religious activity. But one thing that if we use especially this particular thing, it's not really factually true. Christianity actually is a religion, guys, okay? We're not saved by religious activity, but it actually is a religion by the strictest terms of the definition of the word religion. It is a religion based on a relationship that we can have with holy God through Jesus Christ. And so it's one of those things I think that, you know, we've, we kind of understand what people mean by that. I certainly, I've said this before, and I know what I meant at that time, that it's all about not what I do to gain approval from a holy God, but what God has done. So it is about a relationship. But let's be really, really careful when we just kind of reduce really profound things down to bumper sticker theology. Having said that this morning, I think that you're going to see that uh, Paul very much addresses this desire that we have, this attraction that we have with religious activity. By human nature, we are spiritual in nature. Not because you decided to be spiritual, you were made, created with a spiritual nature. It's part of the Imago Dei. It's part of me. You know, when it says in Genesis that we were created in the image of God, there are certain things that God has that he's just kind of placed in us, and we kind of take over. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are male or female, young or old, part of your humanity is that you're a spiritual person because God created you. doesn't mean that you react spiritually correct. doesn't mean that there's this automatic drive to do the things that are biblically, if we want to say biblically approved of. No, just we have a spiritual nature. And that spiritual nature can take on every form that you can imagine. It can take on uh, witchcraft. It can take on, you know, things that, uh, you know, this mysterious part. It can be, you know, I really believe in Bigfoot. I mean, there's this part of us that is kind of out there in this unknown, and we want answers. We're spiritual in nature. That's a given if you're a human being. What we're talking about this morning, though, is that this attraction being spiritual. We do ponder things that our animals do not. Your animal right now is dog, cat, whatever it might be. I know if we took our dog, pondering right now, when is the next time that I'm going to eat? I mean, there's this instinct 
and she loves to eat. And so even after breakfast meal, she's already pondering when's the next meal. Okay, this is, she is not pondering eternity. Now, I know that you think your dog does. I know some people go, well, I think my dog really does think of eternal things. No, it thinks of when is it going to be fed again. Okay, that, basically that's, you know, am I comfortable or not? It doesn't really think about the things that are spiritual in nature. That is part of who you are as a human being, part of the creation process of God. But part of that then, as we want to explore this spirituality, it does make us kind of open to different thoughts. And one of those thoughts that we ponder is eternity. What happens after this? Is there a God? Where did we come from? What is the purpose of my life? And as we begin to think upon those really big, important questions, we begin to entertain, is there a God? And if we determine that there is a God, there is a creator there, then we begin to entertain, okay, how do I make sure that I stand in favor of this God, especially if I die? Because if there is a place after this, if we're not just what we say annihilation, where we just cease to exist, if there truly is something that goes on after this, how do I make sure that I'm in the right place? If there's different places, if one place is good and one place is bad, these are the things that humans posture. And they ponder these things. And we come up with different answers. Some people would answer the, the whole question, well, I think that, you know, if there really is a heaven, if there really is a God, then just be good. And we talk about that a lot because this is one of our natural persuasions. We think that if we're good people, then we're probably going to go to heaven because the other place is for bad people. The $6 million question, though, guys, is what is good or bad? Who's the determiner of good and bad? Is it 50-50 if you do more good than you do bad? Well, what a lack of hope for somebody who for 60 years lived a really abusive and terrible life, a self-centered and always, you know, out there taking advantage of people. Because they better live to 120 under that method. If they have 60 years in the bad, they better have 60 years in the good. And so all of a sudden we begin to ponder. One of the things as we look into the Bible is we trust that this is God's word for us. God directs us in those questions and he actually gives us the answers. Part of what Paul addresses today is part of that answer. As we start chapter 3 of Philippians, the Apostle Paul warns the church about the subject of religious activity just for the sake of religious activity Uh, That being that somehow it's going to gain approval of a holy God. He doesn't say that religion is bad. You're not going to see that in this text or any other writings of Paul. That religion, a belief system, because that's really what a religion is. He's not going to say that religion is bad. Judaism was a religion. Christianity is a religion. He's not going to say that religion is evil. I don't think Paul was against religion by definition, but I do think that he would strongly, as we will see in the text this morning, against thinking that somehow we can do religious activities to make ourselves right with the holy God. And so he's going to use a, 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 a word, and he's going to use it repetitively here. It's one of the words that Paul used as he wrote to other churches too, but he's going to use it with the Philippians today. And I want to explain it because I think it's important for us to grasp what Paul's really getting to. He's going to use this term called the flesh. Now, by definition, this is flesh, right? 
flesh and bones. We would use it in a scientific way to talk about the flesh. When he's talking about flesh, especially in this context today, he's talking about humans' desire or their ability by their own external abilities to be made right before a holy God. And he actually uses this term quite a bit with other churches. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 3. We always want the word to interpret the word. When we come upon something that we're going, okay, what does that mean? What did Paul mean? Well, look at what the rest of the word. Because God's word is always going to interpret itself correctly. Look what he wrote to the Galatians in this term using the flesh. Oh, foolish Galatians. Well, that started off good. Well, who has bewitched you? And the Greek word there means kind of like you're almost under a spell. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, capital S, that is the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Very simple question. How did you come to know God? If the Holy Spirit of God is in you, how did you do it? Did you do it by works? And you attended a church a certain number of times? That you did some other religious activity? You climbed this big mountain, and there was a guy sitting at the top of the mountain, and you said, what is the meaning of life? What did you do to have this Spirit that, that is the living God inside you? Did you do it by works or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? having begun with the Spirit, because that was kind of a rhetorical question. In other words, they would have said, no, we didn't work for this, we didn't earn it, we're saved by grace through faith. And so verse 2, they would have kind of answered, no, we didn't work for it. And so look how he finishes then in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is, by the, the things of God? Are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your works? That's the context. Now, again, flesh means flesh and bones. It can mean a lot of different things. In this context this morning, let us understand when he addresses the flesh, he's talking about our human activity to try to please God. His warning to the Galatians, as we will see in today's text, is a warning also that he gives to the Philippians. It's because that um, we can say that we're saved by faith, but we have this strange attraction, folks, to linking our standing with God based on our own performance. Are you challenged in that? Just be real honest with yourself. I mean, have you ever connected something that went wrong that week? Flat tire. Water heater bust. $1,000. With, well, yeah, I did this yesterday. Got angry with my wife or I did this. And all of a sudden we connected something that we did with some, you know, other thing that's really not related. Now, again, if you rob a bank and they take you to jail and you get convicted, that, that's called reaping and sowing, okay? There's a direct connection there, okay? But sometimes, because we are spiritual people in mind, and we have this attraction to our own performance, sometimes we link things that God never would have linked. You know why the water heater may have gone out? Because it's 22 years old, you know? It's time for a new water heater, Okay? In fact, if it went for 22 years, it had it's a good life. Okay, celebrate. Now, sometimes things just break, guys. Sometimes that's the life of that appliance or whatever it is. And to tie it directly 
to something that we did because we told a lie or we did this. It's not really biblically based. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And so we're people that are kind of attracted by our own ability to perform rather than Christ's performance. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, and let's start right there with finally. Uh, this is not a word meaning the ending. Have you ever heard a pastor? I, I don't think I do this at all. And the last point this morning, and then go on for 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes. I stand accused of that and guilty of that. You know, this is what he means. He's not saying this is the last thing. Hey, you're about to go get supper, you know, or, or dinner. What he's saying is, okay, as I begin to wrap all these thoughts together, it's not so much his conclusion as he's bringing thoughts together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We sang a song this morning to, to, to sing your hallelujahs, to raise your hallelujahs. That would be equivalent to this Greek meaning, that we sing out and rejoice, not because of the circumstance around us, but because of the great God that we serve. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What does he mean by that? Simply, I've told you this before, I'm telling you it again. It's a repeat reminder. When you're a teenager, did your parents repeat oftentimes things that were very, very important? To the point you're going, I know, Mom. Yeah. That's, that's why he's just a spiritual parent here. And he says, I'm going to say it again. It pleases me to say it again because it's really important and it's safe for you to hear this again. So that's the context. What does he say? Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate what? The flesh. And in this point, he is talking about the flesh. (laughs) See, look out for somebody. Warning, there's some people out there that that really don't have good for you. And he he calls them dogs. He's not a UGA fan. He's not trying to make that a a college football thing. He's saying they're dogs in the most uh, unlikable sense. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. And they didn't say that in a very affirming way. They said those dogs and what they meant, these despicable people. And so he borrows that from this Jewish way of thing. And he said, okay, beware of these people out there that, that are evildoers that look to mutilate the flesh. That is, they're, they're going to suggest some things to you that don't get God's approval and, and yet they're going to make it sound like it's really, really important. What does he mean by this term dogs? Well, there's a certain amount of these religious people in those days. They had a Jewish background. And as new non-Jewish people, Gentiles, came in and they were becoming a part of the body of Christ and they were becoming part of the, the church there, there was the Jewish believers that now were Christians and the Gentile believers that now came to Christ. And sometimes there was a kind of a, a friction between the two. And there were some people that said, in order to truly become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first, and then you can progress on to Christianity. Is that biblical? And yet it was prevalent in a lot of the thought. They were called Judaizers. And they made so much of their Jewish heritage that they thought that they were one step up from other believers that came from a non-Jewish background. So these dogs, Judaizers, 
they tried to get the Gentile Christians to believe that in order to be right with God, you had to do some of the old Jewish traditional things. And one of those things was circumcision. Now, it's interesting because Paul, and I, and I realize this is a kind of a sensitive subject and everything, but let's look at it maturely, biblically. In one place, Paul's going to make much of circumcision. But he's talking about the circumcision of the heart mainly. Another place he said, no, if you want to do that because that makes you a special Christian, that kind of gives you an advantage up, he said, then no way. In one way, it looks like Paul's kind of, as he debates this in the New Testament church, that you don't know how he feels. No, he's not against circumcision. He was a Jew. We're going to see later on, a couple of verses down, that he was circumcised exactly when young Jewish boys were supposed to be circumcised. He's not saying that that was wrong. What he said was wrong is that you would make this a somehow of a stepping stone into Christianity. Folks, we live in what many have called the Bible Belt. We live in a place where there's a lot of churches. If you've never left the South, if you've never really traveled beyond a Southern environment, you may not realize that there's a lot of places both in the States but also in the world where there's not a church on every corner. That the predominant thing on Sunday morning, and I don't even know that it's even predominant now in the South, is to go to church. That it would be an oddity rather than a regularity. And, and so I say that because we have a culture around us, whether you're part of that culture or not, whether you're agreeable of that culture or not, that we have a culture around us that says, okay, you know, to be a Christian, you got to go to church. Let me ask you a theological question. In order to be a Christian, do you have to go to church? No. Should a Christian go to church? Yes. Yes. Because the Bible assumes that we want to be a part of a body of believers for a multitude of reasons. For our witness, so that we can mature and grow. And so it's not against going to church, but it never makes the link that if we go a certain number of times that we become a Christian. We were talking in life group a couple weeks ago about when Jesus said, you know, uh, uh, in judgment day, there was this group that came before him and, and, and said, Lord, Lord, and, and he doesn't know them and he, he sends them away. And, and they said, wait, 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 time out. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do like miracles even? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And we talked that night in life group about were these people genuinely shocked? And I think that they were. By every appearance of that text, I don't think that this was something that was not surprising to them. I think that by doing religious activity, by kind of doing a lot of things that seemed like they were Christian, that they were going to get approval of God when they stood before him on the judgment day. I would say that there's a lot of people in our culture, in our day, it's under that same belief. I went to church, got baptized. And in no way we're saying going to church and being baptized and all those things are not important. But it does not save us. This is such an important part because we live in a culture that very much is like this. That says, okay, if you do religious activity, somehow this checklist gets you approval from a holy God. 
Let me be very, very blunt and blank, uh, say in a blanket statement. Our only approval before a holy God is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Nothing added, nothing taken away, not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Folks, Christ is our only hope. In Christ alone do we stand before a holy God in right relationship. And we understand that maybe theologically. I'm just saying that we, even here in the South, kind of live in an environment where it's easy to start kind of believing that there's a checklist. How many of you came to Christ, let's say, later in life and maybe didn't grow up uh, in a home that practiced Christianity in a regular way? How many of y'all like that? Just go again. Okay. When you came to Christ later in life, whether it's in your 20s, your 30s, or whatever time, was it a little bit intimidating? Was it a little bit confusing as you started to go to church, as you started kind of hanging out with other Christians? And they would, they meant well. But they said, have you been having your quiet time? And then all of a sudden you're going, oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I think I'm a Christian, but you know, this quiet time thing. Have you been going to church? And all of a sudden they started adding these things that are good things. They're not bad things. But as qualities, and somewhere in your mind, you're going, how often do I have to have a quiet time? How how long does that quiet time have to be? Anybody understand that confusion? And it could be a multitude of things on that list. And that happened in the day of Paul. And it happens in our day. And so what is Paul meaning by this? What, what, what is his purpose of telling the Philippian church this? He wanted to be very, very clear that they understood what saved them and what didn't save them. What made them right with Holy God and what did not make them right with Holy God. The point of this was Paul's warning to the church. Look at verse 3 and 4. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now he's using flesh as human endeavors. What we talked about in the beginning. He's not talking about this flesh. He says we don't put any confidence in our ability to do the right things. Verse 4. Please catch this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has a reason for confidence in flesh, I have more. He isn't saying that all the Jewish traditions are bad. He's just saying, I don't put confidence in them. The Judaizers, this group of Jews that say you had to, if if you're a Gentile, you're a non-Jewish person, you have to kind of do the Jewish things first, and then you can become a Christian. It was kind of a door that you had to go through first. He said, that door doesn't exist. The only door is Jesus Christ. And so he addresses this, and he says a loud shout, No, you don't have to do these things first to become a Christian. Let me give you an example of this. Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the customs of Moses, Moses was Gentile or Jew. He's a Jew, okay? Jewish believers of the Old Testament. 
Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, the custom of Moses, the the Jewish traditions, you cannot be saved. He says some people are actually teaching this. You have to go through these acts, these steps first. Do you think Paul was in agreement with what these men who came down said? No, in fact, Paul and Barnabas go. And this was really cool. I was talking to some of the elders this morning. I was talking about, you know, this thing was, is called the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts chapter 15, we see a little picture of it. And James is there. And Peter's there. And Paul's there. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, think of like any famous leader of the New Testament. And they come together and they begin to discuss theology. And one of the things that they really discussed was circumcision needed in order to become a Christian. You and I might say, of course not. But that was a debatable matter. And so they debated it. Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. It says, and after there had been much debate. In other words, this wasn't just, "Ah, don't be so foolish, next topic. They actually debated it for a long time. And I love this. Because who's going to stand up? Peter. Peter's this bold personality that even after the coming of the Holy Spirit and once the Spirit of Christ is in him, it's a controlled spirit, but he doesn't rob Peter of his boldness and his personality. And that's kind of the cool thing about the Holy Spirit of God. He takes out the bad parts, but he kind of leaves. If we're kind of this fighter mentality, if we're kind of this bold personality, then he just kind of refines that and points that to the gospel rather than just stripping us of that unless it's a detriment to our Christian life. And that's what I see in Peter. Peter's this bold person. And so what does he do here? And after that there had been met, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. He's talking about calling out the Jewish people. And by mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. In other words, now he's extended that to the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. What did Peter just say? Hey, guys, in Christ Jesus, level playing ground. Level playing ground. Jews and Gentiles. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now look at verse 10, because this is the point. This is the point that Peter's trying to make, and this is a point that he's driving home. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What is he saying? How many? Let me paraphrase Peter. And if, let's say that you're part of this community of believers there at the Jerusalem Counselor. Basically, he was saying, how many of you are in right standing with the Holy God because you did everything right? How many hands went up? Zero. So he said, why are we promoting this idea that if you do certain things, that you're right before Holy God? Our forefathers couldn't do that. That's why we needed Christ. And he calls it something. What does he call it? Very important. A yoke on the neck. Do you think that we've ever, not intentionally, 
Not purposely. But in this draw to religious activity, sometimes placed a yoke on the neck of young believers and new believers. It's tragic, guys. It's tragic. Peter goes, why would we do this? He stands up, hey guys, why are we asking to do something that we can't ourselves do? Do you see the point? It's not the number of quiet times or church attendance. And it's not that that's bad. Please hear the fullness of the statement. We're not saying, I, I, if you came to me and said, I want to grow in Christ. You know one of the things I'm going to say? I may not call it a quiet time, but I'm going to say, hey, get in, in the word and, and daily pray before God and, and be in accountability and discipleship. I'm, I'm going to tell you those things. And those things haven't changed since the days of Peter and Paul and, and all these other people. But they don't save you. you know, your question would have been, how do I grow in Christ? Not how do I come to Christ? And there's a big difference in the way that I would answer that. Does that make sense? Just want to make sure that we're clear. And again, I, I preach to you as if you are intelligent, very capable people, because I believe the Spirit of God gives you holy and spiritual understanding. So I'm never going to dumb it down, guys. But this is an important doctrine. This is a, an important theology. And you might say, man, I've got my theology correct. I would never say that works save you. And yet, in practice, in a southern culture, we would say, well-meaning. Hey, are you having a quiet time? How long is that? Have you read this book? Do you know how to recite this? Do you, are, are you memorizing scripture? And we would start adding things to the list that are good things. And in the confusion of that young believer, they could say, okay, are these requirements? What was the Gentile of that day under this false teaching believing? I've got to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And Paul said no. He wasn't saying that circumcision was bad. He wasn't saying that it wasn't meaningful to him in his life. He just said it's not a requirement for salvation. So why are we so drawn to religion? If you have been in our church for some time, you have this list probably. I hope that you wrote it down because I think it's an important list to have. Somewhere in your notes, somewhere in your understanding. Why are we, as humans, drawn toward religious activity? Three reasons. Really easy to remember. Number one, because we can measure it. Number two, because we can try to master it. And if not, we can just manipulate it. And this is what the Pharisees did over and over again. And this is what we as humans have a tendency to do. Why are we drawn to this? Because if I went to church eight times and you only went to church two times, do I feel a little bit better about myself? Does God say, I love you more because you've been to church eight times uh, opposed to you? You've only been there twice. Or you've never been. Are we saying that going to church is bad? Are we saying that studying, discipleship, and all these things are bad things? No. We're just saying, guys, these are methods of growth. These are methods of our sanctification not of our salvation. 
Well, Bobby, don't you preach that a lot? Isn't that kind of a repetitive kind of thing that you say a lot? It sure is, because somehow, since we're preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it comes up a lot. Why? Because it was a perennial problem. Why? Because we have this perennial pull in our own hearts to want to measure it so that we can master it. And if not, I'll just change the rules and I'll manipulate it. For the whole purpose of somehow believing that God is more approving of me because of my my activity and the things I've done than the activity of Christ and what he's done. I love, Paul comes back, and I don't know if you ever see Paul as just this great theologian, this studious guy, big head in the sense of really knowledgeable and smart. Do you ever see a funny side of Paul? Because this next passage, I, I kind of see Paul going, okay, you want to play that game? Let's play that game. Let's just try that on for size. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. He said, hey, you want to start comparing religious activity? You know what he's saying? I win. I can beat you all. If it comes down to religious activity, I win. But he's not promoting that game. Basically, he said, okay, I I measured it. There was a part of his life before Christ that he measured it. I, I mastered it, and I beat you. What does he say there? As to righteousness under the law... I mastered it, guys. I was the Jew of Jews. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I mastered the game of religious activity. I was at the top. Nobody beat me. And yet, his whole purpose of stating that is that he puts no confidence in that to make him right with a holy God. Folks, that's the deadly attraction of religious activity. Deadly because it has no real life in itself, by itself. Just going to church by itself, uh, separated from God and, and the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives, it's just religious activity. In one way, it's just dead. Attractive, it is spiritual activity because it's a contest. And you know one great thing about a contest is if you look long enough, you can always find somebody to beat and that you did beat. Is that true? I'm not a runner. Mad is. A couple of others you are. and Matt, you didn't come in dead last, right? Did you come in first? No. Okay. He just did the half marathon there at, uh, at Athens. And there were some before him and there were some after him. And he could have looked at those before him and gone, ah, man, I lost. Or he could have turned around and looked at all those behind him and said, I won. Winning victory is a very finicky thing when we base it on performance. Would you agree with that? It's kind of like wealth. Is wealth a finicky thing? Was there a time in your life that, uh, again, I've asked you this before, that you thought, man, if I could ever get $3,000, I'm going to be a rich man. 
Then all of a sudden you had family, responsibility as a mortgage, college savings fund and all that. And you said, man, at 30000 I don't know that I'm saved, man, I, I, that I'm a rich man. And all of a sudden you found out that this whole kind of number in your mind is really finicky. It kind of moves all over the place. And then you go on a mission trip. And let's say you go to a, a mission trip to a very impoverished area and you come back, I am the wealthiest man in the world. Or then you go to the nicest place in all the world. You know, man, I'm just, man, I'm not wealthy at all. Our standing in Christ is not a moving target, guys. This would be a really good place for an Amen. Because it is finished, it is done, it is accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith and our trust in Him and His performance, it is settled. If not, we've made ourselves... Well, what have we done? We've put a yoke, or we've allowed somebody else to put a yoke on our neck, to use Peter's phrase. And I don't know that many of you, you are really nice folks, and I don't know that we would ever do that intentionally. Let us just be very, very careful as we go out there and as we encourage people in their walk, as we encourage people that don't know Christ to come to Christ, that we do not tie it to specific things always. Uh, Again, I I do believe that if you're a Christian, not only is would you go to church, I believe that you want to be in church. I really do. I don't understand how somebody can have the living God in them and not want to be a part of some church. Maybe not this church or that church or that, but somewhere. I I just think that that's what the Spirit of God would want. But never, you're not. The Lamb's book of life wasn't a final check when you went to church for the thousandth time. And the angels aren't, you know, when it says that they're celebrating new life in Christ. I promise you, when you were dead and you came to, to believe in Christ in faith, they celebrated. Not when, yes, number 1,000. He's in. Name in the book of life. Because what church do you need to go to? What denomination do you need to go what if they have church three times a week and you just go on Sunday mornings? It's a moving target, guys. It is a yoke upon our necks. And yet we're strangely attracted to it. Why? Because it stops being about Christ and it starts being about me. And I can beat some people. Please hear this. Hear it in the spirit of love and strength and grace that it's given in, at least the intention. Folks, if we add anything, anything at all to the grace that saves us, we are the dogs that Paul talked about. We are false teachers. Well, that wasn't very nice. No, that's biblical, guys. It's the gospel. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. My heart hurts for those that got turned away from Christianity because somebody had placed a yoke on their neck 
and said, okay, you have to do these things in order to become a Christ. Now, maybe you do these things to grow and mature in Christ, but not to come to Christ by the finished work that he's already done. This is the only way that we have the hope of Christ, guys. In Christ alone. Adding nothing, but taking nothing away from his finished work. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, in one way, I think that we would maybe be able to pass a theological kind of test on this, that we would kind of know the right theology. And yet, Father, in practice, Father, I think that sometimes we can be pretty religious activity-oriented people. Especially when it comes to thinking that you're pleased with us, that you approve of us, that somehow, Father, that you just love us more because we did these five good things today. There is blessing in following your commands. Father, you said that if we're Christians, they, they would know us by our love. And, and Father, they will be obedient to your word. Father, you have a high calling to the holiness that you've called us to. And yet, Father, you've never placed our right standing with you on any of those things. So, Father, today, will you give us clarity of that? Will you help us to speak not just with some kind of surface kind of little bumper sticker theology, but, Father, will you give us a good understanding of the culture that we live in? And, Father, that the only thing that we have to offer this community, the only thing that we have to to offer anybody from any background is not a denomination and not a list of activities, but Christ Jesus in Christ alone. We love you, Father. Thank you that our salvation does not need to be a moving target. But Father, you have sealed it. You have completed it. You have 100% done it all through a finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you as we pray this in the power of his name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.